Hey, this is Dr. Patty Sadala. Welcome to my Experience Jesus podcast. In this identity episode, we will dive into the Song of Solomon and learn about what it's going to require for you to become the Bride of Christ. It addresses the journey to your spiritual maturity. Of all the names of God, the Bridegroom is perhaps the most intimate and the least understood. I first met the Bridegroom in 2007 when I took a class on the Song of Solomon and the Bridegroom's Heart when I was interning at the Cleveland House of Prayer. Part of our internship curriculum was to study Mike Bickle's work on the Song of Solomon. Mike Bickle is the founder of the International House of Prayer in Kansas City and has made it his life's work to understand this name. To my knowledge, no one has done a more in-depth study on the Song of Solomon than he has. The Lord gripped Bickle's heart in 1989 and gave him a life's mission to add the lens of the Song of Solomon to 24-hour prayer, music, and praise. Before 1989, Bickle had never studied the book or even heard of anyone preach or teach on the subject of the Song of Solomon. The first obstacle to overcome when studying this book is to realize that it's not a gender thing. One of the reasons the Song of Solomon is underrepresented in the pulpits is that most people interpret it only as a story of physical love between Solomon and his Shulamite bride. Looking at the book through that lens limits God's intention and definition of his name, Bridegroom. It creates a gender-related resistance to the Bridegroom that is a barrier to a real revelational understanding of the intimacy that the Lord desires with us. Also known as the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon is an allegory of the love between devoted followers representing the bride and Jesus, the bridegroom. The book addresses two major things, trust and partnership. The book is essentially a story of the progression of a new believer finding Jesus, then becoming heartsick to sold out, and eventually to a fruit-bearing partner of God. Even Bickle himself admits that he had to overcome gender issues at his initial reading of this book. He read it and was confused. Why would the Lord give him this book about kisses and breasts and gardens and gushy lovey-dovey language? He was a man, not a bride. But the Lord kept pressing in, told him to stick with it. God promised to reveal its true meaning. And the Lord kept insisting rather commanding, read it again, read it again, read it again. By spirit-led revelation, the Lord made it clear to Bickle that this book was not about gender or sex as most assume. Rather, it is about the trust and partnership necessary for true fruit-bearing and co-reigning Christians that the scripture promises. Revelation 3, 21 and 22 in the Tree of Life version says, To the one who overcomes, I will grant the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I myself overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Ruach, Holy Spirit, is saying to Messiah's communities. The Song of Solomon is all about the journey of maturity in your Christian life. 
The book has two halves that mark out the believer's journey to spiritual maturity and fulfillment in Christ. In the first four and a half chapters, the new believer, represented by the Shulamite lover, is learning the blessing of the presence of God. Her focus is on all the wonderful and beautiful things that the Lord's presence means for her. In the first four verses of chapter 1, the believer has just realized the beauty and blessing of being kissed by the kisses of her lover's mouth. Song of Solomon 1-2 says, May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Solomon arrives and she turns to him and saying, For your love is better than wine. This verse represents meeting God in the pages of his word, the kisses of his mouth, and realizing that his love is for you. New believers learn about the blessing of being in God's presence. And the Shulamite's journey begins with what Bickle calls a paradox of grace. In Song of Solomon 1.5, it says, I am dark in the heart, but lovely to God. My own vineyard, my heart, I have not kept. The darkness is not related to skin color, but rather our imperfections, our sinful nature. The Lord meets us right where we are at salvation, warts and all, and he doesn't need us to be anything more than who we are in that moment. He shows you that he loves you as you are. The verse reveals the areas of her heart that need repentance. God deals with those areas with gentle love, affection, comfort, and edification. You don't need to be anything more than you are for him to want you. At this phase of the Christian's journey, the focus is all on what God can do for you. This is an immature beginning to the journey, but the Lord still loves you no less. However, God has much more for you and doesn't want to leave you there. So he issues a test of conviction where he reveals your heart and causes you to become repentant. This is not to punish you, but rather he lovingly corrects you to move you forward. The goal of this divine correction is to increase faith, hope, and love. At this stage in the believer's life, the hunger for God is awakened with a holy dissatisfaction with current intimacy. Their heart cry is for more. This is what the Lord had to say about this truth. I created everyone to cry for more, more, more. Their hearts desire more of me, but the flesh can confuse that heart cry and desire more in the wrong direction. That is why there is so much idolatry and addictions in the world, because I created you to want more. The challenge is to understand that true satisfaction and fulfillment come from me and not anything or anyone else. The first challenge to discovering that what the heart actually wants and needs is more of me. It only takes a small taste of the real love of me to move you. Experiencing that love can be more addictive than anything else. Encountering the realness of me is the secret. Meeting more and more aspects of my names and character is a way for you to increase this hunger for me. My love is a holy addiction. A small taste of my love will increase your hunger for a bigger meal. Many never taste and see that I am good so they don't know what they're missing. They try to fill the God-shaped hole in their hearts with more of whatever won't satisfy. Then they wonder why they're so unhappy. God loves you exactly the way you are, so we don't need to be good enough 
for him to grip our hearts with his unmatchable love. He wants more for you. This is why he issues tests to show you your heart and causes you to be repentant. In Song of Solomon 1.6, it says, Stop staring at me because I'm so dark. The sun has tanned me. My brothers were angry with me, and they made me the caretaker of the vineyards, and I have not taken care of my own vineyard. She is aware of her sins in her heart and is agreeing that she has not taken care of her own heart. Responding in agreement with God's correction moves you to repentance and leads to purity of heart, faith, hope, and love. This is about taking care of your own heart first. Serving in ministry without taking care of your heart is like a vineyard caretaker who has not taken care of his own garden. We cannot do things for God successfully without his power to do them. That's why he's always encouraging us to do things with him. We cannot release what we don't have to give. Serving for God is actually serving apart from God. This kind of service leads to burnout because it's coming from your own strength and not God's. The tests represented in chapters 1 and 2 of Song and Solomon are about purifying you. Isaiah 1.25 in the Names of God Bible says, I will turn my power against you. I will remove your impurities with bleach. I will get rid of all your impurities. God's gentle conviction is pointing out the areas in your heart that need to heal and be made whole. Sin patterns reveal areas of needed forgiveness. God puts a gentle finger on the areas that need to be healed, purified, and released to Him. Passing the tests by confession and repentance bring you into a season of surrender and increased prioritization of God. The next rung on the ladder of maturity is related to the mountains. At the beginning of Song of Solomon, chapter 2, the bride is blissfully happy that she's receiving so much love from her lover. He is speaking into her spirit, really helping her accept her worthiness and building her up in faith, hope, and love. Then he issues a challenge for her to step out of her comfort zone. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 8 to 13 say, Behold, he is coming, leaping over the mountains, springing over the hills. My lover is like a gazelle or a young buck among the stags. Look, he is standing behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. In response, my lover says to me, Get yourself up, my darling, my pretty one, and come, come. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over, it is gone. Blossoms appear in the land. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its early figs. The blossoming vines give off their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my pretty one, come, come. Here God is saying, I'm way up here, leaping effortlessly on the mountains. Won't you come with me and we can leap over the hills together? He wants you to go with him, so together you will skip on the mountains. God's heart cries for you to accept his invitation to step into a huge calling in the area of influence for which he has specifically designed for you. It's your unique part of God's fantastic plan. He's saying, I have amazing plans for us, but I need you to come with me. 
Lance Wallnow has taught for many years on the seven mountains of cultural influence. Your purpose in God's kingdom plan is on one or more of these mountains. They are the family, media, education, arts and entertainment, government, business, and religion. The family foundationally influences emotional health and well-being of a person. Media, education, arts, and entertainment collectively influence and define the worldview, beliefs, and values. Government interprets and enforces laws. Business affects prosperity and economy. And religion defines our idea about God, morality, and values. Deuteronomy 28.13 says, The Lord will make you the head, the leader, and not the tail, the follower. And you will be above only. You will not be beneath. If you listen and pay attention to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today, and observe them carefully. When the Lord says, skip on the mountains with me, he's calling you to your divine purpose. Notice that the verse does not say, skip on the mountains for me. It says, skip on the mountains with me. This is a crucial distinction to understanding if you're going to pass this test. The comfort zone test is the second type of test that is one that separates the immature Christian from the mature one. The comfort zone test is about trusting God to go way beyond your natural abilities and dreams. The fear of losing your comfort in this challenge can be paralyzing. There's a thought in the back of your mind that says that 100% obedience to God will be painful and too costly for you to pay. And for this reason, most people begin by saying no. And so did our Shulamite bride. In Song of Solomon 2.15, it says, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. The foxes represents the distractions, busyness, and priorities for your time that you have made higher than God. These are the Shulamite's excuses for not going with him to the mountains. Notice that the foxes ruin the vineyards. The vineyard represents your heart, and the fruit of the vine is your fruit-bearing effectiveness for Christ. The blossoms of the vineyard show you that the harvest is ready. When God calls you to a higher calling, he's saying the time is right for you to come with him now. Our destiny is to conquer the mountains with God, and he's not willing to leave us behind. So he lets us wrestle by quieting himself. The Shulamite woman initially failed the comfort zone test. She was not ready to skip on the mountains with her beloved. She allowed her fears and the foxes to stop her. She was happy staying in her comfort zone for a while. But her no created a feeling of distance from her lover. And even though God is still as close as breathing, when you disobey, God feels distant. He has not left, but your disobedience has created static. It's hard to hear him now. You may think that God has moved, but it's you. He's still right there, watching and listening and even praying on your behalf that you will catch up to your calling. The real reasons for saying no are fear and priorities. The fear comes from not really understanding that you are doing this with God and under his power and in his partnership. We limit God when we think that the calling is bigger than he is, and it is something that we need to do in our own strength. So initially, we say no to things like 
taking a missions trip, writing a book, confronting and forgiving an abuser, going into business, completely changing your career or moving across town or across the country or to another country, or talking to a stranger in Walmart. We don't realize that when we say no, we move outside of God's covering. And that's why you can't hear him as clearly. The safest place you can be is under the umbrella of God's provision, power, and safety, which comes only from obedience. So we need to remove self from the equation. One of the main learning lessons at this stage of maturity is to learn how to give God all and remove all things self from the equation. This is what God had to say about this issue. Removing self is a process of onion layers. Self-issues pop up in so many areas of life. Self-consciousness is essentially a fear of man's reaction, needing the approval of others, and caring about what people think more than what I think. Self-effort is when you think you don't need me. This is a pervasive problem. I find people praying to me only when all else fails, way too often. The lie of self-sufficiency is a lie of unneed. Believing that you don't need me has led many lives down the road to destruction, beginning with Adam and Eve at the beginning of time. Selfishness is when you care more about your own wants above the needs of others and, more importantly, my will. Selfishness is the opposite of love because it forsakes me entirely. Self-promotion is rooted in ego. It's principally serving yourself. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve yourself and me. To purpose in your spirit to give me all is to decide to agree with me about all matters. It is in your best interest because I am the omni-god. I know everything, see everything, have sovereign control over everything, and I'm always love. It's acknowledging that I have your Jeremiah 29, 11 very best plans for you, and that there's no better person to trust with your life than me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. One thing that all kingdom heroes have in common is that they're willing to pay any cost for the sake of Jesus. And yet, most said no before they said yes, many arguing with God for their lack of qualifications. Moses begged God to choose someone else, citing his language deficiency. Jonah didn't say yes until God delivered him from the belly of a whale. This is what Jesus had to say about being willing to count the cost. There is always a cost of obedience. It will cause a sacrifice of time, personal will, and resources. Realizing that your life is my life and that your efforts are part of my plan is one of the first steps to understanding that the cause of Christ is worth any expense. Your life is not your own. It was bought with a price. Every sacrifice you make is always a gain. Here on earth and in heaven, your losses can become your greatest rewards and blessings. For those who give it all, who remain faithful unto death, there is a martyr's crown that will bless them enormously for eternity. Oh, if people could see the eternal reward for this type of sacrifice, the world would be a better place. Most see sacrifices as losses. There is always gain when you are willing to pay any price for my sake. Sacrifice is the fruit of a heart of gratitude. Those with grateful hearts know that they cannot outgive me. They are in touch with the truth of salvation and the fullness of Christ in their hearts. 
Those hearts yearn to thank me, no matter what. Everything is a test. Whenever something challenging or difficult comes our way, we tend to pray for God to take it away. Not every lousy circumstance is necessarily from the enemy. Sometimes the Lord allows challenging things to happen so he can use them to bring you forth in spiritual maturity. The more powerful choice is to thank God for the challenge and ask him what you're supposed to learn from it. Getting Lyme's disease was not something I would wish on anyone, but the Lord turned that around and used it as my catapulting experience. I look back on it now in that season as a greatest gift of my life because it caused me to go deep in God's presence and find my kingdom purpose. Everything is a test. Every blessing, every challenge, every trial, and even every tragedy is an opportunity to learn a lesson that will draw you near the heart of God. Once in his presence, he can use all of those things to heal, purify, and transform you into your ideal Christ identity. The sooner you realize that you're experiencing a test, the more you can put on the clothes of God's righteousness to overcome it. Your story is your gospel. Your Jesus story lived out for his glory in your skin. So let's talk now about what it takes to cross the threshold of maturity in Christ. The last time we talked about the Shulamite bride, she had just said no to skipping on the mountains with her lover. And she was beginning to feel that disconnect. Once that sweet connection with God that we had in the past feels missing or lacking, we just want it back so badly. God continually reminds us of our initial hunger, and he teaches us lessons in testing through the circumstances. Our desire grows to the point where the fear of obeying is less painful than the loss of God's felt presence, and the Shulamite begins to look for her lover, but she can't find him. Where is he? Why, he's skipping on the mountains, of course. So if she wants to see him, she needs to be willing to go to the mountains. A shift takes place when you realize that you want God more than you want anything else. Your hunger increases to get that intimacy back, and your heart cry is for him and not for what he can do for you anymore. It's the difference between seeking his face and not his hand, that is, his presence and not his service. When your heart is ready to connect with God again at a deeper level, ask yourself, what was that thing he asked me to do that I didn't do? In what area is my spirit feeling his conviction? Confess and repent anything that you think may have contributed to the static so that you could not hear him. And when you confess and repent and turn your face back to his, you'll be able to hear him clearly again. He moves you into a place where you can say yes to whatever he calls you to do. Obedience leads to a greater connection and an increased glory and anointing. One thing that every powerful, fruit-bearing person in the Bible, in church history, and in present day have in common is that they say yes, no matter how scary the calling. And this is what the Lord had to say about that threshold. Fear is removed when a person understands that I am. When I am with you, there is no fear. My anointing power is with you when you align with my will. And when I'm directing your path, you will know the way. You are never alone because I am. 
When I give you something to accomplish, I bring my full self to the job and fully equip you to carry it out. It's all about understanding who I am. I have heard people say, God does not give you anything bigger than you can handle. This is not from me, of course. My plans are always too big for you to handle. If it were easy, you would think you didn't need me. My plans are always big and they're always good. If you know those things are true about me in your heart, then you will come alongside me no matter how scary, crazy, big, or out there my calling is. You see, the secret to being able to accomplish your calling is to know who I am. I can be trusted, so trust me. I created you uniquely for such a time as this to become who I already see you as, the real you, the Christ you, your Christ identity. Your Christ identity is empowered completely by me. I trust you for the job I've called you to do. Will you trust me? Start by obeying every heart prompt I give you, even the small ones. You will see that I'm there to work through you. It's never you alone, and it's never me alone. It's me working through you. We are partners. Once you trust me to see those truths in the smallest of things, you will be able to trust me to help you with the big stuff. Will you partner with me for the plan I have for you? Whoa, did that pierce your heart like it did mine the first time he gave that journal to me? It's all about passing the comfort zone test. In Song of Solomon chapter 5, we see the shift in the Shulamite's heart where she starts to seek her beloved earnestly. She asks people in the village if they've seen him. They tell her to look for his sheep. Sheep follow their shepherd. John 10.27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And Song of Solomon 5.2 says, I was asleep, but my heart was awake, a voice. My beloved was knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of the night, and she opened the door. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door of the and knock, and continually knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, restore him, and he with me. The bridegroom continually knocks and patiently calls for your higher purposes. When you pass the second test, a shift takes place in your heart, crossing you over the threshold to a clearer identity in Christ. Your thoughts and your actions become more of a partnership with God, You trust God completely, unconditionally, and begin loving Him back. Once you have crossed the threshold, committing to obeying Him without condition, something miraculous happens. God starts to release more power through you. You learn to trust Him entirely and become His partner. Suddenly, that book, missions trip, new career holds excitement and not fear. Your heart has shifted to what you can do with God and not what he can do for you, or even what you can do for him. Your heart loves him and knows that he will be there to equip you for your calling. Only weeks before Peter led 5,000 to Christ after receiving the Holy Spirit, he had denied Jesus three times. But now he was boldly speaking for Christ, the same thing that got Jesus crucified, and had Peter too afraid to even associate with him only 50 days before, was of no concern or barrier that day. That's what it looks like to cross the threshold. Your calling has come into focus. God begins to open doors. 
you begin to speak and act according to God's will. Miracles become common occurrences because God trusts you with increasing giftings. Because you have learned to trust Him, you become His trustworthy partner. In the first four chapters of Song of Solomon, the Shulamite bride was concerned about her vineyard. There is a radical shift in her heart, and her vineyard becomes his vineyard in the second half of the book. She has given him her whole heart. You commit to give your heart to your spouse on your wedding day. You live together, share things together, do things together. You do everything with that person. You become one, united for all eternity. If people realized the level of spiritual significance that was happening on their wedding day, I believe there would be less divorce. Marriage is founded on what your spouse can do for you, rarely make it. Marriages that last have couples who partner, love, and serve each other unconditionally. The Lord wants you to be his bride. Who exactly is the bride? Is it all believers in heaven? Or is it only those who have crossed the threshold and proven themselves to have been made ready? I believe that everyone who accepts the gifts of salvation will be at the wedding feast of the Lamb. But will every believer in heaven be the bride? In Matthew 22, 1-22, Jesus tells the parable of the king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Many were invited to the celebration, but people were saying no. There were too many foxes, too many priorities keeping them from accepting this invitation. So the king sent his servants out to find the people who were willing to come to the feast. Those who were willing to say yes filled the wedding hall. Revelation 3, 21-22 in the Passion Translation says, And to the one who conquers, I will give the privilege of sitting with me on my throne, just as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The one whose heart is open to let him listen carefully to what the Spirit is saying now to the churches. The verse says to the one who conquers. The Bible word for conquer is nikeo, which means I conquer, I am victorious, overcome, prevail, subdue. Conquering sounds to me like passing the comfort zone test. I believe all born-again Christians will be at the wedding feast of the Lamb in heaven at the end of time, but only those who cross that threshold will be the bride that God trusts to co-reign with him. Revelation 19, 7 and 8 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. To make yourself ready sounds like a condition to me. The righteous acts sound like a fruit-bearing calling. This is what trust and partnership look like. What does it feel like? John 16.33 says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have perfect peace. In the world you have tribulation and distress and suffering, but be courageous, be confident, be undaunted, be filled with joy. I have overcome the world. My conquest is accomplished, my victory abiding. About the bride's partnership with Jesus, Mike Bickle summarizes, She walks out her mature bridal relationship with Jesus, which is expressed in obedience. Song of Solomon 7, 9, and 10. She expresses the bridal partnership in her intercession for more power. Song of Solomon 7, 11, and 13. 
and she expresses her partnership in her boldness of public ministry, Song of Solomon 8, 1 and 2, and she expresses her bridal partnership in their full union, Song of Solomon 8, 3 and 4. It is the bride that will co-reign with Jesus for eternity. Based on this research, it is clear to me that not all those with the ticket to heaven are the bride. Some will be guests at the wedding feast of the Lamb, and some will be the bride. Which will you be? Just Kuliana said in the Jesus 18 conference, be the bride that God can trust, have no other lovers. And that really stuck with me. Before we dive into our encounter today, I wanted to take a moment to ask you for a blessing. If you have learned some new things and have drawn closer to God by this podcast, please pray for the Lord to multiply it and allow the Lord to pop a few names into your spirit for whom you could share this podcast with. Simply text or email them the link to the pattyej.podbean.com site and let them know why you've been blessed by it. And please check out my books, journals, and downloadable resources at pattysadala.com slash shop. And remember the code EJPOD to receive 10% off everything, even the stuff already on sale. And remember, they make great gifts too. Thank you for blessing me by your prayers and for being a listener to this podcast. In today's experience with Jesus, we will ask the Lord to show you where you are in your Christian maturity and give you a glimpse of your marriage future, where you and God are living as trusted partners. If this is your first podcast experience with us, you may want to go back to the trailer episode and learn about the biblical foundation for dialogue journaling, our process for experiencing Jesus. This leads you through the first special place encounter with Jesus as a child. This is a starting point for all of our experiences with Jesus. For best results, it is always good to properly posture your heart for your experience by welcoming Jesus' presence with praise and thanksgiving and playing with him in a special place as a child for a few minutes before asking for anything from him. So after you have spent some time with Jesus in your special place, sit cross-legged facing him and holding hands. Look him right in the eyes without looking away and ask him how he feels about you. Then ask him to give you a glimpse of yourself united with him in trust and partnership. What are you doing together? Ask Jesus to show you what you had to overcome to get to this place in the glimpse. Ask God to clarify the calling that he has put on your life and then take all the time you need and record it in your journal. I hope you have a greater idea of what it looks like to live as a trusted partner with the bridegroom and perhaps a greater idea of what God is calling you to do. And I hope you will join us on this podcast adventure. Follow this podcast and forward it to others that you think may be blessed by it and check out all the links below. They are designed to take you deeper. I thank God for you and bless you in Jesus' name.